Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to Real Leaders. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders in the world. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to make that nasty, naughty ask again. It's not nasty. It's just annoying. If you really like this show, if you listen to others, if you find yourself talking to me about it, please take a moment and rate this podcast in iTunes. It really does matter. Thanks a lot for jumping in and doing that. Today, we're joined by Vikas Reddy. He's a co-founder of Occipital, a Boulder-based company that he's going to tell you all about. Vikas, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Sue. Great. So the way we start every Real Leaders podcast is to ask our guest to give us his two-minute life story. Got it. Yeah, I don't even know if I have two minutes worth of material there. But, you know, I grew up in Michigan. I'm a proud uh, Michigander. So Where you, in Michigan? Just north of Detroit. So I was born in Detroit. My dad was actually, uh, you know, he came over from India. My parents came over from India in the 80s. And then he was a grad student at Wayne State University in Detroit. So we were there for a year uh, and then, you know, moved out. It was like at the, the height of... Uh, when it was like the crime capital of the world, I guess, but definitely has gotten much better now. Um, but yeah, we moved, you know, moved about 30 miles north there in a town called Rochester Hills. So that's, that's mainly where I grew up. You know, I ended up staying in, in Michigan, went to uh, University of Michigan. Did you go to public or private high school? Public high school. You know, I was pre- pretty fortunate to go to a really good high school, really great public high school, great teachers, like people really cared. And it was, you know, you know, a lot of ways, like I look back and I'm like, man, I got really lucky with where I was able to be born and the fact that my parents were really supportive and just really, really great parents and also just lucked into a great situation. So yeah. What were you into in high school? What were you like? Uh, I was definitely on the, uh, the nerdy side for sure, but I got into programming pretty young, just loved computers. Um, just loved like working on different projects like that. Loved, uh, games like risk and, uh, you know, things like things, you know, strategic games, I guess. Um, still to this day, like I'm always like really, really excited about those types of games or situations. Um, and I actually also really love sports. Like I was really into like tennis, soccer, um, basketball, like all these different sports. So those are, those are kind of the main thing I was into, I guess. All right. So yeah. how did, how did you pick UM? I mean, obviously great state school, yeah. pretty close by where you're yeah. from. It was, you know, to be honest, I was really hoping to go to MIT or Stanford. Those were like my two top schools I really wanted to go to. And I got rejected from both of them, which was honestly at the time, like pretty crushing. I was like, I was valedictorian in my high school, got really good SAT scores. And I was like, oh man, I can definitely get into these schools. You know, it was kind of, it definitely made like a, you know, definitely caused a little bit of a chip on my shoulder that I think actually maybe is, was helpful in the long run, but ended up going to, um, you know, Michigan. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, it honestly wasn't a school I thought about very much, but once I got there, it was, it was awesome. It's a huge university. So it's not like one of those, you know, small liberal arts colleges, but there's tons of opportunity there if you like go and get it. What dorm were you in freshman year? I was in uh, Bursley. Oh, Bursley. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So I was in, I was in North campus, which, which was, which was pretty cool. And then I ended up moving to, um, the central campus to South Hall, which is my favorite place to be. All right. So computer science major. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I did uh, computer science and I also, uh, minored in, uh, math and history. You know, it was kind of weird because when I was getting out of college, you know, or getting, getting close to like halfway through or whatever, I was really worried about just getting a job out of college. I was worried that I would get in this path where I'd be like, cool, I have a computer science degree. I can get a job at, you know, some major tech company and just sort of like coast through life. Um, and so I almost, I almost, uh, switched my major to be a history major just to like make myself unemployable <laughs> or at least attempt to. And I still to this day, I really love history, but anyway, it ended up, ended up sort of working for a startup out of college. Cause I was really excited about that. Just worked there for a year and really kind of like learned, kind of like learned via just seeing how things operated 
how a startup might work. And then where was that yeah. located? Oh, it was in uh, New York city. Okay. There's a startup called uh, Zanga.com. Not, not Zynga, yeah, yeah, but right. <laughs> uh, it was like a social networking blogging startup there. So cool. Yeah. And didn't you intern at IBM? Yeah, I did. Yeah. That was like, that was an interesting experience as well. And that, I, you know, not no knock on IBM in general. It was just like, it kind of cemented my thinking around basically never wanted to necessarily work at a big company. <laughs> um, I, I think, I think it's a, great choice for certain people. It just wasn't for me. So. And what about it wasn't for you? We're not not and plenty. Yeah. They have a lot of employees. They're okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. What made you not a great fit for a big company? Um, I think it was just, and maybe, you know, maybe in the future I would be, but like right now I just wanted to do something, do something and have like a really big impact like myself personally. And I felt like there it was more sort of, uh, you're a small part of something pretty big and I do really enjoy the the part of you know being part of something bigger than myself, but there is something about having a big hand and being able to um, have both a lot of responsibility, but also a lot of ability to influence what's happening in the world. So that was that was what was really interesting to me mostly. All right, so you work at this other company that isn't Zynga, but Zynga. Is yeah, it? yeah, that's okay, right. Yeah, great. starts with an X. Is that X? Correct? Yep, okay, that's right. Great. Yeah. Got it. And you're in New York. What happens next? So actually it was pretty, pretty random, but so I, you know, I, I was, uh, with another friend of mine, I ended up doing a bike trip from San Francisco to LA and I actually ended up meeting up with uh, my friend, Jeff Powers, who's actually in LA working on, um, some computer vision ideas. And so it was basically like a really interesting thing. And he was, you know, he was one of the, the smartest people I knew from college. Like he was, we were both in this, uh, engineering society called Tabita Pi. Our first business exchange ever was, I think I traded him some M&Ms for a, a hot wing in college. Ended up meeting up with him and like he was showing me some of the cool stuff he was working on. You know, I'd already been like working on some ideas for, for startups myself in New York, but like I didn't really have anyone, anyone else that was like really excited to like work on this with me. And so this is like an awesome opportunity. So we, you know, we joined up and, and started, you know, working on Occipital basically. Got it. What year was that? End of 2007 and then, you know, early 2008 is kind of when we, you know, crystallize some of the early thoughts there. I want you to imagine that I have the understanding of a nine-year-old. Yeah. Not a nine-year-old like you, like a, like you were when you were nine, because you probably had a really good facility with this stuff. But I want you to explain this to a typical nine-year-old. What does occipital do? That's, that's a tough question. You know, the way I would describe it is I would say, you know, if you look at a person and they're looking at the world with their eyes you know, a typical person has a really great perception of what's, what's in the world, um, where they are relative to, um, all the stuff that's around them. They have a really good understanding of, you know, is this a couch? You know, what's the shape of this table and, and even like recognition, like, oh, here's, you know, there's Sue, there's this other person. Now you look at a computer and computers by default have no understanding of the world around them. You know, they know what you type in typically, but they don't really know anything else. They might know some information they can sort of parse on a web page or whatever else, but computers don't really have this rich understanding of the world. And so, you know, one way to think about what Occipital does is we're using cameras plugged into different computer systems and then writing software that takes that camera input and actually creates a really rich understanding of the world in the computer. And what's interesting there is you can kind of think of if you're running an app on your smartphone or, you know, whatever else, it, it doesn't really have any great understanding of like what you're doing in the world. And so, you know, our thinking is that if we can build this, you know, software engine that can really understands, has great perception of what's, what's happening in the world, what's in it, you can start to write applications that really can actually help you out in that real world, whether it's visualizing things in that space for things like augmented reality, 
whether it's for robotics, like building a smart robot that can actually navigate around your home, um, or even just virtual reality. There's actually like a intersection there where you can use cameras to actually track your motion um, and therefore skip some of the expensive setup that you'd have for a virtual reality system. So generally speaking, you know, the, the sort of summary of all that is we're building this computer vision platform for augmented reality, virtual reality, and, and robotics. I want to be sure that I understand the delineation. And, yeah. I, and I, I think I'm pretty good nine-year-old right now, just myself. Yeah, That's yeah. a very self-serving question. Okay. I want to understand the delineation between augmented reality, yeah. virtual reality, and AI, artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. So maybe I'll start with like augmented reality. So augmented reality is taking the real world, and this is the way we think about it, is this sort of like strong, you know, strong AR, where it's you have a really rich understanding of the world, and you use that understanding to overlay information, games, other sort of virtual elements into the real world. It can be a pretty powerful concept because you're using one of the most powerful human senses, which is just vision. And you're sort of using that as a way to overlay really rich information on top of what they're already seeing. You know, this could, you can imagine things like uh, navigation, like, you know, overlaying a sort of line on top of what you're, you know, where you're supposed to go. You can imagine uh, looking out, you know, looking at a, a house and, and imagining, oh, what would this piece of furniture look like in, in this exact space? Okay, so yeah. that all fits into the rubric of augmented reality. Yeah. Got yeah, it. Exactly. Okay. Now, now, virtual reality is taking a, a virtual environment, um, whether it's a game or a, um, some virtual environment that you've created or experience, and it's pure, you know, the idea is generally it's pure virtual, and bringing a person into that environment in a very uh, immersive way. So it's, it's a little bit different because in that sense, you're, you know, let's say, whereas with augmented reality, if you're sort of, you know, using that in your home, you might want to overlay on top of your, your home. What you'd want to do in virtual reality is actually want to just, you don't even want to you seem like you're your in your house. Exists, yeah. You want to be on a, a space station, right. you know, you want to be in, you know, some amazing forest world. It's a, it's a, it's a different sort of construct. It's a little bit different because you're actually sort of transporting yourself into this virtual world. And in a lot of ways, like what we're working on, you know, we have an, another term, which is mixed reality, which okay. is sort of merging the two where you can have pure virtual content, but you can also have augmented reality, uh, the kind of like mixed together in this interesting way. And that's the example. If I look, I looked on your site and saw yeah. this video from December, that's the yeah, example exactly. where you're in your house and things are happening exactly. that are, uh, are arguably unreal, yeah. uh, in your house within that context. Exactly. Yeah. So we built this, uh, pretty cool mixed reality robot. That's like purely, you know, a virtual robot. You know, we called her Bridget cause we have a product called bridge. You know, she operates within the space of your home. So she can sort of walk around wander, wander around. And it's an interesting sort of experience there. That's kind of how that works. Okay, so yeah. let's go to AI and yeah. what the intersection points are there. And AI, you know, I'll you know, I'll be honest, I'm I'm certainly no uh, certainly no expert in this in this field, but it's you know what the way I would describe it. Twenty years ago, or you know, maybe maybe forty years ago, um, if you were to show Google just a search bar to a person and and they typed into the question, right. they would have called that AI like easily because they'd yeah. been like, wow, it's like answering my question basically. So what's interesting is. So I think in a lot of ways, like the bar has shifted now. The but you, by the way, I was um, I was pretty much around for yeah, that experience. So yeah. yeah, we didn't know that phrase AI, but gotcha. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah, and you know what I'd say is like the you know the the sort of the science fiction view of of AI in a, in a general sense is a, is this you know something that could power like a humanoid robot, right? Where it's actually like maybe even has things like self awareness, can actually like interact with humans in a in a human like way. 
you know, in some ways that's, that's one class of AI where it's sort of this, you know, this sort of, um, almost, you know, human level intelligence. Now there's a bunch of other things in AI, which I think would fall under that umbrella too. Like a lot of the recent advancements in, you know, there's like deep learning and like machine learning where it's more like taking, you know, there's, there's a lot of specific tasks that can actually be, that were actually quite difficult in the past, things like image recognition that are actually getting quite good now with, with new techniques and more processing power. And so, you know, there's things like image classification, there's, uh, you know, there's even a lot of tasks, definitely a lot of tasks in computer vision um, that fall under that umbrella as well. And so if I step back and think about where occipital fits into this picture, you can kind of think about it in terms of robotics, actually. If you take like a, a very intelligent robot of the future, you can kind of divide it into three parts. There's the body of the robot and the sort of physical embodiment of it. Um, there's companies that are doing amazing stuff in this field, like Boston Dynamics. Um, then there's, you know, some aspect of self-awareness or even like, you know, motivation, like what is it, you know, what is a, what does the robot want to do? How does it interact with people? Uh, and then the, the other part of it, which is where we're focused on is perception. How does the robot know where it is? How does it know what's in the world? Like what's the structure of the world around it? How does it uh, identify different objects so it can actually like interact there? You know, so you can kind of think of it as in those, those three broad areas. And, and what you're seeing now, I think, is each of these parts is actually really interesting. You can think about drones as being some aspect of the body of a robot. There's a bunch of companies besides even just us working in this perception sort of area. And then in the AI field, there's, there's lots of work happening in sort of uh, deep learning, like trying to build higher and higher level uh, software in that space. So It feels to me like it's just on a continuum, right? And the continuum is getting you from the strict rubric of what we can see and perceive yeah. to fuzzing up those edges a little bit and expanding that perception exactly all, all the way to the edge of the continuum, which is no human input at all is required to create human-like intelligence in right. a machine. Yeah, and this is, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think like there's going to be, in a lot of ways, like you look at people using smartphones today, and in a sense, we are somewhat cyborgs like i used to in middle school i need to remember all of my friends numbers in fact i probably still remember them now <laughs> but you know no one does that today because you just have this like cell phone even just searching for information it's i think it's going to become even less of a less and less important over time to be a good memorizer of information but rather a good searcher and good sort of fundamental knowledge um, it's great to hear you say that that yeah. really plays in well to my strengths thank, yeah. thank you <laughs> yeah it's I good feel, i feel better already <laughs> okay so you guys at occipital decided i know that you build software obviously but yeah. you also have a hardware play yeah. uh, more than one so tell us a little bit about that and i'm curious why you picked hardware because that yeah. is the a sort of a non-essential move and seemingly you know, harder yeah, to just yeah. make things and have inventory and all of that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a, you know, for, so the way, you know, the way it came about was, you know, we went through, you know, several software only products. We had Red Laser, which was a barcode scanner for the iPhone, which is powered by some computer vision. We built 360 Panorama, pure, you know, pure iPhone app with computer vision capabilities. Then, you know, we actually went out and we were, we, we did, you know, raise a series A to go out and build this platform for computer vision for perception, basically. You know, we called it, I think at the time we called it a game engine for augmented reality. We started working on that and we also saw the Microsoft Connect. You know, we were looking at that, playing around with it and kind of projected forward into the future. And this is something I think, you know, one of our strengths as a company is we're sort of able to, because we've focused our energy so much in this computer vision field, we've been able to sort of look forward and say, 
what's going to happen in computer vision in the next five, 10 years. And this 3D sensing area was something that we looked at and we're like, it's very clear that this is going to be part of the future in the next five, 10 years, basically. But the problem was there was nobody really building a lot of applications for it because it wasn't built into like a really nice platform. Like there were people doing hacks with Connect where you could plug into a laptop and do some 3D scanning, but it was like really janky. But we were like, you know, looking at that, we're like, well, no one's going to build 3D sensing into devices until there's good applications, but no one's going to build good applications until there's 3D sensing. And so what we said is, well, is there an interesting, you know, piece of hardware that we could build that would actually solve a couple of problems? One is this chicken and egg problem with hardware and software for this world, like basically justifying us building the software way ahead of when everyone else was. And then secondly, also it's a really great business model. Apple is probably the master of this where, you know, people think they're buying, you think you're buying an, you know, an iPhone, the hardware, but you're buying this, um, you know, you're buying it because of the software. You just don't think of it that way. But if, you know, if you ask somebody to buy, you know, you go to somebody and you say, Hey, do you want to buy a $300 application? They're like, no, just no one's used to buying soft. You know, it's just a, it's almost like a psychology thing. Uh, with hardware, it's like people are willing to pay for that. And it's weird because even if it's the equivalent amount of work, um, there is this sort of divide there. And, it, and so it's, it's provided us a really great um, business model, like a good way to monetize computer vision. And that was one of the things that we saw with other failed computer vision companies out in the world was that there was a lot of this sort of graveyard of um, people that had built some interesting technology but hadn't really monetized it extremely well and ended up sort of failing or getting like a smaller acquisition or something. So like you said, it's definitely not easy. You know, we somehow pulled that the structure sensor off with a team of only... I think we had like maybe 12 or 13 people at the time. And it was an incredible effort. Like um, probably still to this day, like the most in sync I've been with any other like group of people, that large group of people. I mean, there's there was times when you could have asked anyone on the team, what do you think about this screw being like 0.3 millimeters longer or something? I'm just making that up. But like, and they'd know exactly what you were talking about. Cause like we were all like almost in this hive mind of connectedness. So definitely an interesting period. It was a huge learning experience because we had never, never built hardware uh, for, you know, as part of the company before. You alluded to the software plays that were early in the company's history. You also yeah. launched this company at like a terrible time. Yeah. Right after yeah. you launched was a terrible time. Yeah. So just walk me through the milestones and funding and, yeah. you know, just activities, especially given that 2010 and 11 were really tough years. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we started the company in 2008 and, you know, we went through Techstars, you know, in the middle of the year. Um, we went out and tried to raise money for um, another computer vision product, which was similar, but not exactly the same, like, you know, in this space of photo organization and recognition and visualization, but tried to raise money and just totally failed. And it's um, it's kind of interesting because in, in retrospect, a lot of people are like, oh, you guys bootstrapped your company. And I'm like, well, we didn't really want to. <laughs> we, you know, we tried to raise money and it definitely the 2008 financial crisis, like, the huge, you know, drop there didn't help us to to close that round. So we ended up failing to raise money, and then we basically had to give up on that that product because it was just too big of a product to work on with just two people. So we had to focus down, and we built. We ended up building a product called Red Laser, which was, um, you know, a smaller bit of uh, computer vision. Um, it let you, you know, scan a barcode um, using just your your iPhone camera. And the interesting thing where there was we built a really good algorithm for this, like core algorithm which could decode um, blurry barcodes because the first iPhones didn't have autofocus. Mm. And that was the problem. Why That's why nobody could could do that. And it was sort of this weird problem where big companies just probably didn't care about the problem because it was too small for them. And then 
small companies just, just didn't have the technical skill. Mm-hmm. So it was like this perfect fit for us. Um, so that product did really well. We ended up, um, you know, getting almost two and a half million, I think paid downloads. We got featured in an Apple commercial iPhone commercial, and then it actually ended up getting acquired by eBay from us, which is, which is a really cool experience. So then we went and we actually went and tried to prove that it wasn't like a one hit wonder. So we built a product called 360 Panorama, which is a real time panorama capture application. It was the first of its kind, as far as we know, where you actually could hold up your phone and just move around in 360 degrees and capture a full panoramic sphere. And that app has also kind of had a similar trajectory where it took off virally. It has over 8 million downloads. We actually still have that application today, but it's sadly been somewhat, uh, we've, we've been focusing elsewhere. So we need to go back and update that at some point soon. All right. So um, you were doing those yeah. two things. Was there, was the eBay acquisition something that gave you a little powder? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. That was like, uh, you know, that was a pure cash acquisition. Uh-huh. So we got, um, yeah, that was a great, you know, you. yep. So that was, that was great. We, we, you know, initially rolled that all into the company and then uh, some of that we took off the table, but some of that we also invested back into occipital. So we were both part of the series A as well. Was Series A your first round? That was our first round of real funding or, you know, major funding. Although I will say um, Jeff's mom was a uh, angel investor for us. So she she put in, uh, I think it was like $20,000 or, you know, and it was, you know, she was our first real, uh, you know, outside of Techstars really like our first real investor. So um, Jeff that was is awesome. your co-founder. Yep, yeah, I'm a co-founder. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, is Jeff's mom still on the cap table? Oh no, we actually, uh, we paid her back with, okay. um, but, but like with, with, uh, with a good return. Yeah. Good, good. <laughs> after, after the red laser acquisition. Excellent. Yeah. Yay. Jeff's mom. How much yeah. did you raise in your series? A? Uh, we raised 7 million. And what, what year was that? That was, uh, two middle of 2011. Okay. Yeah. Great. So you've got the series A. Yeah. Is that when the pivot? No, it's not really a pivot, but yeah. is that when you started building hardware? Uh, we actually, uh, we actually started out as we still raised that money on a pure software play. But the, you know, later that year, you know, later that year, like sort of middle of the, of 2012, we started thinking about hardware, um, and, you know, Foundry was, was, you know, Foundry and our board was, was really supportive after we sort of, you know, put forth the case, you know, what we actually did was we wrote out this, um, and actually looking back is like reasonably accurate, but we wrote out a five, a five or 10 or maybe even 20 year story, like with like varying resolution saying, Hey, here's how things could go if we build hardware. Um, and saying, like, here's when, you know, here's when 3D sensing is going to get built into mobile devices and, and that kind of thing. And so that was really, that exercise was really useful. And then we ended up, you know, essentially following that plan to, to varying degrees. And we should say Foundry is a venture capital firm that's located that's right. here in Boulder, Colorado. And you alluded to them. Uh, have you raised money since 11? Yeah, we raised, um, we raised a $15 million Series B in uh, 2015. That was uh, led by Intel Capital with uh, Foundry as well. Both of them were were essentially the main investors there and then uh, several other smaller investors. How many people are in the company? Uh, 36 full-time, I believe, as of Monday. (laughs) And in a moment like this, I don't know if it's easy or hard. I know you talk about this a lot, but a lot of times you're working in the business. Yeah. When you look at what you've created from the outside, yeah. like if I'm your cousin, what do you imagine you or someone else as an outsider thinks about what you've done here over the last eight years? Uh, that's a really tough question to think about because it's like I never sort of step out of it. You know, it's, I'm, I'm sort of in the, in the weeds of it, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I'd say that I think based on sort of what other partners and people have said, I think we've built our, up a pretty good position as one of the leading computer vision companies. 
there's not a lot of other companies that are focused in this exact area that have built a business that's revenue generating and has a position like ours where they're actually building hardware and software. That's my, that's my best guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you think about your financial viewpoint? You've raised 22, 22 million. million bucks. Yeah. So, and you have 30 some people, so that's not yep. exactly overextended. Yeah. How do you all think, although I'm sure your people are not inexpensive, how do you think about money as a company? It, it's pretty interesting because we come from Michigan and from the Midwest. We have somewhat more uh, Midwest values perhaps, but we're, we've definitely been pretty careful about spending um, and I never, never, ever, ever want to be in a position where I have to lay, lay anyone off. Um, and so we've always been pretty careful about how we spend money and maintaining a, a fairly long runway if we are like spending above revenue. A lot of that's because we are working in a really, a really hard technical space. Like that's one thing that I think that does set us apart from a lot of other companies is that we're, we're a company that's actually like what I'd say is a technology company, not a company that's using technology, but we're actually building aspects of it. Um, sort of fundamental science uh, kind of things. And so that's one of the things that we really optimize for us. So, I mean, one of the things we think about when we're with money is maintaining some good horizon of, hey, we have a good amount of time to iterate and hit certain goals because we know things can take longer than than you think sometimes. But yeah, I mean, it does, you know, raising money is, it's, it's great because you can you can go after bigger things. Like you can definitely, there's certain things that you can't, you just can't to do with a, a five-person team that you can do with a 35-person team. And that's the most exciting part of the money itself, you know, ignoring sort of all the other benefits of having great investors. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 kind of, you know, roughly speaking, how we think about money. The flip side is, of course, you know, you raise $22 million, you can't sell the company for $50 million and, and be excited. Right. So let's talk. We haven't covered. So post-2011, at some point, you started building hardware. Just yeah. walk, walk me through that. Yeah, still to this day, if you ask me, like, like things will come up in conversations where it'll be like, oh this cool thing happened. I'll be like, what are you talking about? And it's like, it's in 2013 and I just have no, I have like very little memory of what happened in the outside world because it was such a craziness of, of effort. It was, it was incredibly hard. It was like a lot of effort to, to spin up that. Um, so we, you know, the, the steps that were interesting where we, we worked incredibly hard to get a deal with PrimeSense. They're an Israeli company that powered the uh, original connect. They basically built that whole, you know, the, the reference design that powered that connect. And we convinced them somehow as a 13-person company to partner with us at the same level, effectively, that they did with the with the with Microsoft, um, which was a interesting feat on itself. And then ended up getting you know we were the only other company that worked with them that built our own our own product around their technology, similar to the to the Connect. Then we had to find a contract manufacturer to partner with, which is which is another endeavor. Um, setting up a production line, uh, just even you know all of the design aspects of the system. There's a lot of really, really subtle but important details of the of the hardware that we really cared about. Like if you look at the external shell of the structure sensor, it's made of anodized aluminum. And it's uh, it's not just for the looks, it's actually which it does create a really nice, really nice finish, similar to like a Apple laptop or iPad, but it's also for thermal properties, so it actually huh. helps dissipate heat. So there's all these like little details. And the, the hard thing about hardware is you have to do a really good job of planning things out because unlike software you can't sort of like get to the last sort of stage and you're like oh we got to like rush this last thing it's like if you forgot to order a certain part you know 16 weeks ago now that you realize it you can't sort of say well ship it to me tomorrow it's like you're you're screwed so things like that are you know was was it was a really big learning experience for us and what did the structure do basically you can think of it as a camera where every pixel is 
a distance value rather than a color value. So imagine like, you know, you've, you, you're looking at an image and then, you know, you're looking at, you know, certain parts of an image. It's just telling you how far is each part of that image. And what we do is we take that data and we put it into the, into the iPad and actually do higher level software that fuses that all together to do 3d reconstruction and, and, and things. What was the most, or what is the most common use case for that device? Uh, the, the most common use case, uh, I mean, the, the sort of high level use case is 3d, like real time 3d reconstruction. So, um, using it to capture 3d models of, uh, in some cases people, um, for medical device, you know, medical applications like, uh, orthotics. Um, so custom printed sort of insoles, um, prosthetics, which is a cool one, which we never even anticipated, which is people are using it to sort of capture the remaining part of somebody's limb and 3d print a fitting. Um, there's a plastic surgery, which is, which is crazy. Um, and, and doing really well. There's a company that's partnered with us there. And then also on the, and then now on the interior capture side, so capturing 3d models of, of spaces. So if you want to get a 3d model of your home as a interior designer, um, or for an as built model, you can do that as well. And that product is still being sold. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Structure sensors out there in the market now. Do you guys sell internally or do you have partnerships and salespeople outside the company? We do have a reseller program, but typically a lot of our sales just come direct through our just e-commerce store. But we do have like a, a sort of steadily increasing um, reseller program where people are, and, tip, and a lot of those resellers are doing something interesting, which is they're not just sort of uh, reselling the product just directly. They're actually saying, hey, I'm a orthotics company. I'm going to build an application on top of your software platform cool. and then sell the hardware for us, which is cool. Cool. Really cool. Did you anticipate that that would happen, that you'd have that platform and that dev engagement? You know, we did launch the structure sensor as like more of a developer, you know, platform basically, but medical was never in our list of things. Like that was never something we anticipated. We assumed there was like FDA rules, like all these, you know, different things. So we're like, and, and it's, it's been pretty cool. Cause it's like, you know, we know zero almost zero about orthotics or prosthetics or plastic surgery and we get to have a hand in them sort of indirectly through our through our partners that's great and there's an at least one more device that you created more recently is that yes. right yeah cool. that's right tell yeah. me about that yeah so that's actually like uh it's called the bridge which is a it's a mixed reality headset for the iphone and what it does is it actually uses our structure sensor product as well and then it has a it has sort of the optics necessary for you to put your iPhone into it and it turns your iPhone into a mixed reality headset. And so what it does is it lets you create a 3d model of your, let's say your living room, and then you put on the headset, uh, and you're able to do six degree of freedom tracked virtual reality. So similar to what you do in an HTC Vive, but just with an iPhone. Um, so you can walk around, explore virtual space. And in that environment, because we have a good model of the space, we can actually show you when you're about to run into a couch or something. And then we can also do mixed reality, which is where we have uh, this this one, ex you know, the, the example that we launched with was uh, this robot character called Bridget. Um, and this virtual robot that can actually interact with your, your real world and uh, do things like path plan around your space. Uh, she can open a portal to like a virtual world, um, play fetch, you know, you can play fetch with her. So um, that's that's been, yeah. That, and, you know, that device is really more of a demonstration and a, and a developer device. The, the big picture there is we're looking to leverage our bridge engine software, the sort of software engine that powers all of this for other OEMs that are trying to make their own headsets. 
am I to look forward sort of eight years from now to an environment where instead of walking down Main Street or Pearl Street, as it's called here in Boulder, with my phone, I am actually going to be walking around with this headset? Or is the headset just the clunky middle time of awkwardness and, you know, eight years from now, what we created and learned from these headsets will be in a more tolerable physical form and experience? It's a good question. You know, I, if I, if I were to put my sort of predictor hat on, I would say that I would say it's very like, it's hard to say whether this will happen in the next five years, but I would say somewhere in the five to 10 years. So yeah. If you were to say eight years from now, I don't think it wouldn't be too out of the question that somebody would have one solved the display uh, optics and, and things to actually, you know, have a small enough and non dorky looking, um, headset that you could wear. And then secondly, from our perspective, the, we, we, we would be, we would love to be the software that's powering that. So the, the software that's actually powering the perception that's, that's running on that, on that system. And so I do think it's actually very likely that in the eight year time horizon, you might start to see the equivalent of, let's say the original iPhone getting out there where it's like, oh, here's this new thing that like maybe only a certain number of people buy at first. I think once people see that experience and they start to experience it, they'll realize it's this new transformational technology and it'll take off from there. For example, just like just the way like the iPhone works, sure. a lot of people, you know, lots of people didn't get it, but the people that bought it and, and used it were like, oh, I get it. I get why this is a big deal. All right. Well, is, and is it going to be the same transformational experience for a schmuck like me? I mean, I get these applications you're talking about in medicine. That's just yeah. phenomenally cool. You guys do a fantastic job in your, I don't even know if you'd call it marketing materials, but in your stories of your products of making them really, really um, palatable to people who are non-technical, really Thanks. getting the features and benefits. It's quite extraordinary given that you guys are both nerds, yeah. but you do a great job at that. Thank you. Uh, but help me understand. So it's eight years from now, it's 10 years from now, whatever. What is the primary benefit as a regular schmuck that I'm going to get from using a device like that? Maybe I'll talk about one specific application that might be, you know, interesting is like, imagine, you know, a lot of people are wearing these heads up displays. One of the things I think that is really exciting is this idea of telepresence. You know, let's say you're in, um, you know, you're in Spain. I'm in, you know, I'm in Boulder. I'm like, hey, Sue, you want to go for a walk and, you know, chat or something, right? And, you know, I've got my headset on anyway. And I mean, you're going to always have it on. Yeah, it's always on. Exactly. Does yeah. your wife know this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Constantly going to have this on. Okay, yeah, exactly. Anyway. Yeah. All right. So got it. I'm but, you know, you can imagine like, um, or maybe, you know, maybe a better example is like, you know, you know maybe we're, we're hanging out. We're like having a, you know, we want, we're on to do like a, a meeting or something in person. And I put it on and, and you're, you know, I can actually see you uh, in front of me, even though we're, we're, you know, miles and miles apart. You can imagine like that kind of like sort of presence. It becomes possible when you actually have people wearing these sort of heads up everyone's wearing this heads up display. Um, also you imagine like, even imagine uh, merging of two spaces. Like you've got, uh, you know, office A, office B, let's say one, you know, one in Boulder, one in San Francisco. You could imagine if everyone's wearing a heads up display, you could like merge them sort of in virtual space. Yeah. I look over and I see, you know, the people that are in SF. Um, so I think there's something really powerful about that aspect of the system. Then there's also just like the, uh, the information sort of display, like what are the sort of interesting applications that become possible when you're, you're able to, you know, come home and there's, uh, you know, maybe it's like, could be like virtual, uh, appliances even like, imagine like you never have to have a TV anymore, right? Because you're already wearing one on your, you know, on your head, you know, you and I could be like watching the same display, but there's actually no real display there. 
there's a lot of applications I think that are that are possible, but it is it is somewhat hard to describe what is the killer app- application because like yeah. just like the iPhone, it's like they had a, they had a couple ones like you know internet browsing, maybe you know just the phone. I think it'll be a similar thing where there'll start to be some interesting applications, and then over time it'll justify wearing this for more and more people over time. What I find funny is if you think about things like you're describing or things like artificial intelligence, the most common things people talk about are the quote-unquote social impact of these technologies. They don't talk nearly as much about what these technologies actually are. And in that sense, this conversation has been really, really illuminating for me. So thanks. thanks. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no problem. What's getting you out of bed right now? Like what's really, really exciting you about this phase in your life or the company? And they may be pretty intertwined. Yeah, it's a good, you know, it's a good question. I'd say that the thing I think that's that I'm most excited about is that we've built up a really incredible team. You know, it's it's taken us a while, like, you know, we've, you know, it's it's not like we just started the company or anything like that, but we've gotten to a place where we have we're able to go after a lot of things that we've always wanted to go after um because we have a lot of the team in place. And there's there's still like plenty of things that we need to improve, grow, and you know, it, with the team, but in a lot of ways, like what we're building is not just a, we're not building like products and technology. We're building this like company and team that can actually go after this. Um, and that's actually like one of the things I'm excited about, is, you know, even with certain aspects of the company, the fact that we have computer vision, we have, you know, software, we have even hardware. So we can actually go and think about problems that are, you know, that require a little bit of hardware here and then a lot of software. Um, we have a lot of freedom to sort of think about different problems. And so, um, it's been interesting cause it's, it's the other thing that's exciting is that there's like new challenges that come from having a bigger team. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's exciting. Sometimes it also sucks cause you have to deal with it. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting learning experience for me. I can't say if one of the things I always say is like, since starting Occipital, I've literally never had a day of my life where I've been bored ever. Mm-hmm. Like there's days when I'm like chilling and doing very little, but I'm not bored ever because I'm like, so, you know, learning so much on a, on a daily basis about like so many things about how, you know, even, even things like su- how supply chain works, it was like a thing that we had to learn. And, and it was a really interesting experience. You start to get a new appreciation for when you pick up a electronic device, you're like, wow, I, I know what went into this. Yeah, that's cool. Um, we're, we're in a really interesting position and we, I'd say we have a really good shot at doing something incredible in this space. There's no, you know, there's no guarantee of success, but I feel like we're at least, you know, one of the companies and one of the teams that actually has a chance. So in this conversation and just knowing you out in the world, and I know you have an office in San Francisco, I I think, and an office in Boulder, Colorado. My experience of you is just extreme humility, candidly. And that's honestly my experience of the guys, they are guys, uh, at at Foundry Group. Right. And uh, I just wonder, do you think it's because you started in Boulder growing up in Michigan that this is sort of the tone of you and your company? Or do you think Silicon Valley on HBO and a lot of the other BS that we hear about, it's Uber these days that we're hearing a lot about, that there are jerks in this ecosystem? I don't know that many. Do you? There's Okay, there's been, I'll say there's been a few people over time, like, you know, people that, are, you know, part, tried to partner with us or, you know, work with us or even competitors um, that I've, you know, interacted with that have been jerks, but yeah, I mean, definitely not in the, I feel like the Boulder, in the Boulder ecosystem or, you know, Boulder, Denver area, it's a pretty small community. So I feel like there's like a lot of social pressure to not be a jerk, I guess. Yeah. It probably also is like, there's probably some degree that I'm sure is influenced by leaders like 
you know, David Cohen and Brad Feld and other people that sort of were here very early on in the ecosystem where they somewhat set the tone. Like you, you know, you talk to them, you know, they're not like, oh, I'm some amazing person and, you know, how dare you even talk to me? It's like, you never get that sort of sense from them. But that, you know, that being said, like my experience, even in Silicon Valley is that most people there also are very humble and are, or, or even if they're not exactly humble in, in all aspects, they, uh, you know, can speak sort of confidently about certain areas and deservedly so because they've built up a, a, a great experience there and have shown a track record. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird, but it's, I haven't, I can't say that on a, in the, in the startup ecosystem generally, I haven't personally experienced that many jerks or, you know, yeah, me either. Yeah. um, so just one last question. Do you think of yourself primarily as building a company or just doing a lot of cool experiments and learning stuff or something else? It's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I would say in, in the early days it was, it was very, you know, when it was just Jeff and I, especially we were just literally just, that was the whole company. And so we were hyper-focused on building products that used computer vision technology. That's all we, that's really all we cared about because that's building a company was sort of irrelevant because we're like, well, we have no money to build a company. So now we are thinking about that more, uh, you know, more carefully and, and really being a little bit more intentional about that kind of thing. Cause it is, that's the thing that's like sustaining is it is building a company that's able to execute well, rather than, you know, only sort of jumping from thing to thing. Thanks, Vikas. I feel like I've seen you at events and been in the same room as you, but it's been so nice to hear you talk about this during this podcast. So I'm sure our listeners will love it too. Thanks for joining us on Real Leaders. Thanks also to our guest, Vikas Reddy, co-founder of Occipital. That's O-C-C-I-P-I-T-A-L.com. I think I got it. As always, Real Leaders is brought to you by MergeLane, the investment fund for companies with at least one female in leadership. Real Leaders also is sponsored by CBRE and their technology and media practice group. They combine the power of the firm's global services platform with highly specialized market intelligence. Learn more at CBRE.com. Thanks again for being with us this time around. We'll see you on the next episode of Real Leaders. If you have comments, feedback, questions, and you've already rated this podcast, you can always email me at tellsue.com.